This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Raheli. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. So if I had to summarize the Black consumer today, I would say a bit neglected and a bit underappreciated, and that shows up in their spending behavior, which means there's a huge opportunity for both incumbent players to realize this, but also new disruptors to, to come in and say, we're not going to take you for granted as a consumer group. That was Shelley Stewart III. He's a McKinsey partner and leader of the McKinsey Institute for Black Economic Mobility. Shelley is joining us today to talk about his recent McKinsey quarterly article, A $300 billion Opportunity, Serving the Emerging Black American Consumer. And right after, we'll hear from John Doerr, a venture capitalist and author with some fresh ideas about how to tackle our climate crisis. Hey, Shelly. Thanks so much for joining the show today. Hey, Lucia. Thank you very much for having me. So, Shelly, I'd like to start by reading out loud the first sentence of your quarterly article on the Black consumer, which lays out a fundamental premise underlying the research. And that sentence reads, for decades and decades, Black consumers have been regularly overlooked by companies that don't see them as a priority demographic. I find that super powerful, but consistently and over time, companies have simply not made this community a priority. What do you think is going on here? Look, I I certainly won't say that the generalization is true for all companies. But what I will say is that the Black population is around called 13 to 14% of the US population. So it is a minority. And so in some sense, it it makes sense that on initial pass, they might not be the priority group. That being said, if you actually look at the spend, today, Black consumers spend around $835 billion a year. Now, that number is about 10% of overall consumption. So it, 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 it doesn't quite reach their population share. That being said, $835 billion is a huge opportunity spread across all the different consumption buckets. And we fundamentally believe that, and our research supports it, there's a huge opportunity to get more focused on this consumer segment. Yep. And presumably whites spend proportionately more. Do we have stats on how spending breaks down by other racial and ethnic groups? If you look at the data, the consumer buying power uh, tracks much more closely to population share and for white Americans, even above population share. Some of this is just the mirror effect of having lower wages than the population share and just being underpaid and not in the right occupations that that tend to provide more income and therefore more consumer spend ability. Right. That makes sense. So theoretically, then, the logic for companies has been financially sort of smaller population, smaller paychecks, maybe smaller discretionary income, and all that presumably adds up to smaller profits. Is that right? Look, I think certainly the the starting logic is that it's a smaller pool than maybe some other segments of the population. That being said, if there is a huge opportunity to identify these pockets of opportunity where you can disproportionately focus. And actually our analysis and our conversations with the Black consumer suggest that there is an opportunity to build greater loyalty and disrupt some of the existing incumbent players in some of these markets. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it seems that what the research actually shows is this, what seems like a fairly massive number, $300 billion untapped opportunity. That seems big on its face, but maybe you can help us put that figure into context. Is it actually a lot for B2C companies? We talk about the $300 billion opportunity for the Black consumer but in context of the $835 billion of spend that's that's growing. So certainly $300 billion we think is easily on the table based on our research. The majority of that $300 billion opportunity that we identified is already being spent today by Black consumers. The issue is that they are significantly dissatisfied with their spend across almost all categories when you compare them to other populations. So we view that portion of the 300 to be at risk if you are currently serving those customers. About 50 billion of the 300 is an expressed willingness to pay more than what they're paying today if they could have products that were better tailored to suit their needs and expectations. That represents a real commercial opportunity to, again, disrupt existing providers and even provide opportunity to earn more and increase profitability in some categories if you better serve the needs of the Black consumer. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's set some more context by talking through the five areas where Black communities are underserved. The research homes in on five categories. I'm assuming this is also where the biggest upside lies. And those five areas are food, housing, healthcare, broadband, and banking. Would you walk us through two or three of those in more detail and help us understand where might companies have the fastest and most beneficial impact? Absolutely. The three that I'll take are what I'd consider things that are really essential goods and services to, to living you know, a life that's of you know, any you know, type of decent quality, food, housing, and healthcare. Our analysis found that one in five Black Americans, or around 8.3 million, lack easy access to fresh food. So you have 40% of individuals in that 8.3 million are concentrated in five states where they're living in food deserts. We believe that there is a substantial opportunity to help address this access issue. Part of what we did in our analysis was to actually look in certain census tracts that are food deserts and used one of McKinsey's proprietary retail models to say, if you put a store in this location, should it be profitable based on a set of attributes? And we found that there were clear opportunities to locate profitable grocery stores in these locations. On the housing side, this is something that came up time and time again in our surveys and discussions with the Black consumer. There's huge opportunity to develop higher quality housing product in areas where Black Americans live. And in fact, that was one of the areas where Black Americans would be willing to pay a fairly substantial premium to what they're paying today if they could have higher quality uh, housing in the areas where they live. Uh, and, and lastly, healthcare. There's a three and a half year life expectancy gap between Black Americans and white Americans. And that gap actually extended to five years, unfortunately, during the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of this comes down to access to 
healthcare providers. There's certainly affordability question, but 16 million Black Americans live in areas where there are few healthcare providers, which is two and a half times the rate of white Americans. This has all sorts of downstream implications for being able to be educated. It's difficult to learn when you're sick and you don't have adequate health care and coverage. Certainly has implications for employment. So across these areas, food, housing, and health care, we think there's real opportunity for the private sector and some opportunity also for the public sector to come together and really better serve the Black consumer. Shelley, question just as an aside. You mentioned the pandemic and the devastating effect the pandemic has had on Black Americans. Acknowledging that, first and foremost, COVID has obviously also accelerated digital uptake. Has the spike in, for example, digital grocery delivery had any kind of meaningful effect in ameliorating lack of access to groceries? And the same could potentially apply to telehealth, but I don't know if that's getting traction or taking effect or not. I am optimistic at the opportunity that is created by a wider embrace of digital in things like fresh food, in things like telehealth, in things like remote education, as a way of augmenting these physical services that are also necessary in these communities. That being said, one of the core issues that we identified is that more than half of Black Americans live in broadband deserts. So if we are going to collectively capitalize on this opportunity, we've got to address the broadband access, affordability, and the device challenge that is largely impeding this kind of progress in the Black community. Right. And you see housing and broadband, two of those categories, converging in a really sobering way during this pandemic in the area of kids' education, right? Where we saw the education gap just widen considerably. So sometimes it must be important to think about these categories as they overlap with each other. Yeah, there's tremendous overlap. Unfortunately, we found in the data that there's also tremendous overlap in the deserts. So places that are banking deserts, as you said, are also often healthcare deserts, also fresh food deserts. There is an economic case to be made to get rid of these deserts, but we have to reimagine the way we think about situating our footprint. We need to expand the aperture and the, and the attributes that we use to determine what is an attractive market. If you're not in these markets today and your decision framework only incorporates attributes that look like markets you're in, it's very hard to get out of that cycle. Right. And so right. that, that's what we're trying to get folks thinking about on this topic. And gentrification also becomes a factor, right? We were talking before we started this recording about my in-laws who live in the Detroit area. One of the examples that you used in your article was a Whole Foods in Midtown Detroit. Afterwards, you started to see shops opening up on Woodward Avenue and so forth. And some of them became high-end luxury shops. That raises a a question about displacement and gentrification and rising prices. Do those factors have to be taken into account here? Absolutely. As neighborhood conditions improve, we need to also find creative solutions to allow 
incumbent residents to benefit from and stay in place should they feel inclined. And I don't think those two things always have to be in such vicious conflict. I think we can be creative about how we think about the housing stock and how we think about real estate and residential development and what the allocation is between affordable versus market rate. And, and we, we have to be deliberate about this because the problem doesn't get solved if the neighborhood improves, but the old residents who were suffering from these deserts don't get to participate in it. We've talked a lot about this idea of inclusive growth. It is a fundamental paradigm shift that I do think will benefit society broadly. And I don't mean just through greater harmony and, and people feeling more included. I think economically, inclusive growth will be better for everyone as measured in GDP terms. Shelly, I'm interested in your own experience. Both of us live in Brooklyn, one of the five boroughs of New York City. And I believe you live in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is historically a Black neighborhood with some of the most beautiful, heartbreakingly gorgeous housing stock I've seen. It's been gentrifying for a long time. How do you experience consumer deserts, food deserts, banking deserts in Bed-Stuy? What I would say is I've lived all over New York City, everywhere from the Upper East to the Upper West to Midtown West to the Lower East Side to Carroll Gardens. And in purchasing a home in Bed-Stuy, which I was very excited to do uh, because I love the diversity of the area, both in terms of the way people look, but also the income diversity, I didn't spend a lot of time up front thinking too much about this idea of the deserts. I, I kind of knew that things would be a little bit different than other places I lived. But what I will say is it surprised me how different. My walk to the nearest branch bank is two times as far as where it's ever been any other place that I've lived. I can say the same thing about the nearest pharmacy. And I will say in my area, grocery stores, there are actually a few, but it's significantly harder both in terms of access, but also quality. And I will also say that the consumer experience in some of the stores in the neighborhood is also different in a way that I think we need to continue to think through uh, in terms of the security protocols and just things that I think make it challenging and really do have some basic human dignity things that come to light that I hadn't experienced in living in other places. Let's turn from where these opportunities sit to how B2C companies can start realizing some of these win-win benefits and this trajectory, as you referred to, of sustainable, inclusive growth. I want to mention what I found to be a pretty striking statistic in your research about the percentage of marketing managers and even marketing research analysts who are Black. That statistic was abysmally low, in both cases somewhere in the ballpark of 6%. That would suggest that awareness and knowledge of this demographic may be lacking, right? So let's talk at a very high level about what Black consumers look like and how they tend to spend. How brand loyal is this community? If I had to generalize, I would say the loyalty is up for grabs. Because of the level of dissatisfaction, our analysis suggests that Black consumers are 25% more likely to switch brands. I don't believe that is because of any intrinsically lower likelihood of 
being loyal to a brand, it speaks directly to the level of dissatisfaction relative to other consumer groups. And again, we talked about earlier the willingness to pay a premium in some instances to have products that are better suited. So if I had to summarize the black consumer today, I would say a bit neglected and a bit underappreciated. And that shows up in their spending behavior, which means there's a huge opportunity for both incumbent players to realize this, but also new disruptors to, to come in and say, we're not going to take you for granted as a consumer group. And we're going to create and tailor products and meet you where you are as the black consumer. If you were to paint the most broad strokes picture of the black American consumer, what would you highlight? What's different about this consumer demographic from whites or from other consumer segments? So if I think about the black consumer, there are a few things that I'd note. One, black consumers are younger. The median age of black Americans is 34. That's a decade younger than the median age for white Americans. Two, they're more digitally plugged in, more engaged with their smartphones. And three, they're more brand aware. There's a number of implications that come from that. On the skewing younger, well, that means that if you can get these customers today, you can have a long life of engaging with these customers, the customer lifetime value, And it's likely that those incomes and consumption behaviors will grow over time. So there's there's vested interest in getting in early. The second point on on smartphones is you know how to reach them. You know where they are. And so that can inform your marketing and customer acquisition in a very deliberate way. Now let's talk about some examples. Tell us a couple of ways that companies have successfully prioritized the needs of Black communities and what the benefits have been. So we we have seen examples of companies, large and and small, make inroads by prioritizing the Black consumer. So if I think about access, Whole Foods, the example we just talked about, they've done an excellent job in neighborhoods that maybe have traditionally been food deserts of situating locations in in these places that have helped to transform neighborhoods. Home Depot is another good example. There is a Home Depot in the middle of Bedford-Stuyvesant, and you would never think that a large format store like that could figure out a way to make that work, but it's there. And so I do believe that there are leaders in this space and there are case examples that, that should be learned from. The other side of it is meeting Black consumer preferences. You've certainly got what I call native black owned and run brands like Bevel tailored their their offering to to black men Fenty Beauty similarly which has been valued at at billions and billions of dollars those examples prove out that the economic case really is there and then their entertainment companies one example that comes to mind is Stars they've really leaned into black content and they've had a number of major hits. You've seen it on the entertainment side, but there's there's substantially more opportunity across all categories. On the one hand, you just talked about some issues with product to market fit, right? And black consumers being dissatisfied with products and new companies or new brands meeting satisfaction in terms of product development. 
What kind of opportunities are there for big brands in simply marketing current products differently? Consumers, no matter who they are, they want to be seen in the branding and in the marketing. So there is no doubt in my mind that you can move someone from the very front end of being aware of a brand to consideration if they feel seen in that branding and in that marketing. And the good news is, is that that is not zero sum. You can have lots of different groups show up in that marketing and show up in the overall branding and accrue those benefits. And some companies and some sectors do this better, but across the board, there continues to be opportunity. One financial institution that I've seen on the retail banking side do this, very deliberate in engaging with influential people in the Black community and then developing a, a marketing collateral and plan that resonates with Black banking customers. Any risks to navigate as companies consider entering this space or common areas where you've seen some efforts go wrong? It has to be authentic. And part of that authenticity, Lucia gets back to this point around who's in the room as you develop the content. So you've got to have folks with lived experience who are helping to develop and to ensure that the obvious pitfalls are avoided. And I think if you do that and you do that in good faith, there is minimal risk. The only thing I'd add there is ensuring that the products that you're serving and that you're bringing awareness to are a good fit for the demographics that you want to serve. The last thing we would want is for the idea to be, let's market things that are not appropriate products or that could somehow extract rather than create value in these communities. We've seen a rise in recent years in big brands collaborating with individuals, right? Do you see a rise in that? I haven't looked at it, Lucia, specifically, but I, I do think there is an opportunity. That's fantastic. But how do we build some knock-on ecosystem effect so that when those big brands are benefiting, some of that value is also accruing to, to the communities that are, are the new loyal consumer? All those things come together in what should be a virtuous cycle, bringing in a new loyal customer base, hiring folks that help you better understand that customer base. To do that, you need to situate and locate in areas where those folks live and buy from businesses that are located and hiring in those communities. Do you think we'll see that trend in creating new offices in geographies where Black communities are disproportionately concentrated? I am hopeful as you said, based on some of the shifts and, and, and new dynamics that we now are starting to understand around remote work as a result of what we learned during the pandemic, I think there's also increasing recognition by the philanthropic community that place-based transformations are probably the next real horizon where, where you're going to places and rather than pulling one lever in 10 places, like education, you go into one place and you pull a bunch of levers. You focus on job creation, entrepreneurship, education. And so I do think that broader recognition of the role of place 
should augment what we learned from COVID and help people who care about this recognize that lens is a really important lens to take if we're going to help make transformational change on this topic. Really interesting. Last question. We've heard so much over the years, and particularly in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder last year, about moral commitments to Black Americans. And we've also described in the research these opportunities as as moral opportunities invoked that term. It feels like in the past, I'm sorry to say, it's it's not clear that morality has proven to be a strong motivator. Why might it motivate behavior change now? I may be a wild optimist on this one, but I believe that one of the big takeaways from COVID-19 is that in many ways, we share one another's fate. And so if you take that broader collective lens, in the case of COVID, it was, it was our health and well-being. Right? What one person did affected another person. If you take that through the economic lens, you recognize that we want our fellow citizens to do better economically because that is better for all of us. You know, the moral overlay there for me is a recognition that we are all linked, that we are all part of the same system and that it's not zero sum. Because I think all of us feel empathy and compassion. And I think what gets in the way of that for us sometimes is the notion that, but it's zero sum. And so I'm hoping that we, we start to move beyond that. The other trend that emerged long before COVID, but I think is starting to accelerate, is this notion of stakeholder capitalism. So capitalism beyond the bottom line of any individual company or the shareholder returns, you are starting to see that show up more and more in the way investors are talking about how they make investment decisions. You're seeing particularly Gen Z and millennial employees talk more about that. I am hopeful that that broader definition of what success looks like for an individual institution is some sort of collective or corporate morality that acknowledges that, yes, we should be focused on institutions being profitable so that they can thrive and serve customers and spend money with suppliers, but that that in and of itself is not the end of the story. Let's close there. That was beautifully put. That was McKinsey partner Shelley Stewart III talking about the $300 billion opportunity serving Black American consumers. Shelley, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Shelley's comments about collective morality could also apply to environmental issues. Coming up, we hear from venture capitalist John Doerr. He's just written the book, Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis now. You can find more of his thoughts on the Author Talk series on McKinsey.com. There's no guarantee that we're going to cut our carbon emissions in time. We've got a very, very long way to go, and we're not nearly moving fast enough. But here's a few things that give me hope. First of all, there's tens of millions of climate activists who are now getting mobilized. The second reason for hope is the commitments of Fortune 500 global companies to reduce or zero out their emissions as early as 2030. Third, there's the potential for really radical innovation 
to make clean energy more affordable. Finally, pressure from employees, shareholders, and investors. $29 trillion of investor capital is now committed to push corporations for sustainability. At the world's current rate of carbon emissions, we're gonna cross into irreversible climate damage in less than seven years. To reach to carbon net zero, which is the only way to control global warming, we can't just decarbonize the grid or electrify transportation or improve our food systems. We're also going to literally have to remove carbon from the atmosphere and pump 5 billion tons of CO2 underground every year. That's the equivalent of running the entire global oil industry in reverse. No country is going to solve this climate crisis by itself. We are going to swim or sink together. What the developed world has got to do is make clean energy solutions more affordable for everyone. Electric vehicles will be competitive in the U.S. at $35,000, but in India, they must be $11,000 to compete with the internal combustion engine. At the grid level in India, they've declared a national mission to become a global leader in solar energy. But to do so, they're gonna need substantial financing from wealthier countries. This is humanity's greatest challenge, and we are very fast running out of time. We have a plan, and it's focused on the 10 big objectives we need to get to net zero. Six of our 10 objectives directly cut or remove carbon emissions. Those are how we electrify transportation, decarbonize the grid, feed 10 billion people, protect our forests and our oceans, clean up concrete and steel, and remove the stubborn carbon that's left in the atmosphere. Then, because we have to do this in time, there are four accelerators to get the job done. We need to enact the right policies, turn movements into action, innovate like crazy, and invest like our lives depended on them, because they do. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.